Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mountain Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment for <clears throat> he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let no one dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of those must be a witness with us to his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast Lot, and the Lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. <clears throat> When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Virgia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're joining us, which I know some of you are, and it's so lovely to have you, we're going, we just started actually, a series moving through the book of Acts. We're going to be in here for a year, year and a half, we'll take some breaks, but we're going to chart through the entire book of Acts. Um, and last week, we just set up some basic ground rules, if you will, some basic themes. We covered Acts 1 through 11, where Jesus has spent his 40-day period with the disciples, which you see in the end of Luke, Luke 24, um, which has stories like the road to Emmaus. Uh, we have stories in John of that period of the Doubting Thomas story. There's lots of these stories that happen in this liminal space where Jesus has died and been resurrected and is with the disciples, both in body and spirit, in some way until he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so um, as we start Acts, we, we, we anchored down a few things. One is that Luke is a very thoughtful author, and he's writing with very clear intentions. Um, he's an absolute literary genius. He, and he writes in Acts 1, verse 8, that... Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit and asked and commanded the disciples to be witnesses 
to the ends of the earth. And that is the theme of Acts. That is that we always need to read a book in light of the theme that the author presents for us. That this book is going to be about witnessing to the end of the earth. In that you see the theme and the structure. The theme is going to be that these disciples are in the growing pains in these 40 day period and they're being lifted in to a new, I heard last night, a new cognitive level, right? A new, a new growth stage. And there Jesus has ascended. He, he's left in the flush to heaven. And here they are. And what's going to happen? They're going to witness to the ends of the earth. That's the plot line. That's the structure. And so as we look, uh, the other thing that we talked about that's really key is how that this is a, a reconnection, a renewal of the whole biblical storyline. The whole biblical storyline that Jesus brings in with his gospel where he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Where he talks to people and he says, no, it's here. The kingdom mission that God has been moving throughout biblical history is nigh. It's going to come throughout my life. I am the culmination of it. And then that kingdom mission is going to continue onward. So you're witnessing to the ends of the earth is part of the big picture story of the Bible. Some of us didn't grow up reading the Bible in a big picture redemptive storyline, so it's hard for us to engage with that. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to see, look, God from the very beginning, breathing life into mankind to be the Imago Dei, to be his representatives and collaborators on earth, fell and made there and chose themselves over him as their authority. And the whole biblical storyline is a redemptive storyline of restoring the original kingdom intended in Eden back on earth, which won't happen, we know, in full until all things are made new, which we see a glimpse of, which we see clearly promised in Revelation 22. So we are in this, what's been called the now and the not yet space, being certain in God's promise, but not yet experiencing it as fully as we will one day. We have to always remind ourselves, as laborious as it might seem, of the context of which we're reading the stories so that we can read them clearly. So then let's look at the two pieces that we're going to be looking at today. There's, there's, let's just fly over these two stories really quickly. In one story, we have Matthias chosen to replace Judas. That's the first piece we're going to look at. In this, we have the disciples doing exactly what God promised, what Jesus promised that they should do, what he commanded them. They're being obedient and they're following him and they are going to Jerusalem to wait on the Lord. They're going to wait and they're going to experience what he has for them with the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the second piece of the story is the arrival of the promised spirit. So we have this waiting on the Lord period and then we have the arrival in the Pentecost story where they will gather back to the upper room, which is a room full of stories, a room full of memories, overlooking the temple, now forever changed as the curtain has been torn, as Jesus has died and resurrected, entering a completely new life stage. And they will be filled with the Spirit, and the text says they will be declaring the wonders of God in the mother tongue of those gathered around from all parts of the Jewish diaspora. In the kingdom, in the temple courts. So those are the two stories we're going to be looking at. Now, as a pastor, I have like a, a really strange job. I'm discovering this two years into it, day by day. I am part life coach, part prophet, part English lit teacher. Like part of what I'm doing as a Bible teacher for you, I don't want to even use the word Bible teacher because that is what I'm doing. But when you hear Bible teacher, you already come with a whole bag of understanding of what that means. And we don't actually look at the Bible often the way we would look at good literature. We think we know, we think we can get in. And so one of the things I talked about last week is how a, a typical interpretive tool we use is called the Rorschach blot. We just look at a text and we go, that looks like... A giraffe. That looks like an elephant. That must be my mother, right? We, we come up with a conclusion from the text and we say, I looked at it, I saw what it gave me, and I'll take that away and go on my day. Jesus is with me, or I'm going to, you know, hit the jackpot, or whatever the things are that we do when we just use that inkblot method of interpretation of the scriptures. 
We just dive in and we take everything out of context for what it means to me or what I need to get from it. But Luke's not, that's not his intention writing the story. His intention is for you to see the plot line that he's laying out, that this is going to be a continuation of the kingdom mission in a witness to the ends of the earth. You can't dive into this out of that frame of reference. So we need to then make his meaning our meaning to properly interpret the text. We have to use his guiding themes and his structures as we look at these two stories. One of the things I mentioned, what we need to remind ourselves is this is typically called the Acts of the Apostles, but it would be better to think about this, commentators have agreed on this, Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The actors in this story are Jesus and the Spirit. They're the ones in charge. They're the main characters that we're getting to know. Their character and their plan is unfolding. The power lies in the hands of the Trinity. And so then the the disciples become actually supporting characters to that end. So we, so we should start these two stories asking ourselves, not, okay, this is a story about Matthias chosen to replace Judas, and okay, this is a story about the Holy Spirit coming in Pentecost. Those are important things. We'll look at those. We should first act, what is Jesus and the Spirit? What is God, the Trinity, doing here? What is happening in the story? Commentator James Dunn writes that you, Luke is essentially saying here in these first few chapters of Acts, it began with the Spirit. It began with the Spirit. And he's trying to give us an expansive view because he's actually harking back to the whole Bible. He's giving us the whole picture. Where else did we begin with the Spirit? Genesis 1, verse 2. As the Spirit of God hovered over the deep before he spoke for the first time. I I don't know if any of you are classical music fans. I know my dad is. But in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, when it starts... Beethoven was heavily influenced and was trying to give us a musical picture of what it would look like for God to hover over the deeps. And so there's just a light tremolo that starts in the song. And then there's a slight cascading of notes and suddenly a deep boom as God in the spirit speak over creation. So if Luke's drawing us to this big picture and he's pulling from themes throughout the Bible, we know that this Matthias story of being chosen to replace Judas is not just about the nuts and bolts. This is a hovering over the deep moment. This is a spirit in waiting, ready to breathe the life and create the order and the structure of the new season of the church. Suddenly, the story becomes a lot more grand when we read it in its literary context and when we can understand it as a big story. We can then say that in this first section here, Jesus was guiding the disciples in last week's passage, and here the Holy Spirit is guiding the disciples. In this first section, verses 1, 12 through, sorry, chapter 1, verse 12 through 26, the Spirit is at work guiding here. We will find that the Spirit has been speaking, the Spirit is speaking, and we know that the Spirit will speak. And we have to look at this also from a different perspective of the setting. So the setting of the story, yes, is in Jerusalem. But what we talked about last week is it's in the kingdom of God. There is a spiritual reality that Luke is speaking from, just as Genesis 1 speaks from a spiritual reality underneath or behind or above, however you want to look at it, the reality that we can see, feel, and hear. And that reality is the kingdom of God, and that's the setting that the disciples are in, and that's where the magic happens. It's like at the beginning of Harry Potter, the very first movie, right? Harry is just a kid growing up in a closet of an abusive family, right? And he has no clue what he's getting into, and then magical things start to happen. All is not as it seems. 
And so Jesus' ministry has been this way for the disciples. I thought we were in Jerusalem. I thought the kingdom was coming to Israel. I thought all these things were happening, but all is not as it seems. And it continues to unravel until at the beginning of Pentecost, the boom moment will happen. So what is the Spirit doing to guide the disciples at the beginning of the story? Well, one of the ways we could look at it Yes, they're following his commandment, but the Spirit is guiding them to confront and travel through their wounds. And I think we can learn something from that as people that follow Jesus. That the Spirit is taking the apostles and saying, go and wait on the Lord in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, in the upper room where he would haunt the space, so to speak. Have you ever dropped off a, a spouse or a friend to an airport and gone home and sat in your kitchen in the quiet of that space and just feeling like what it feels like without them? Confronting maybe the woundedness or the loneliness, the fact that I'm in for something different now. That's the, that's the space that the Spirit is taking them to, to wait on the Lord. But it's not a passive waiting. This is a very active waiting. So the two things that I want us to focus on with these two stories is how the Holy Spirit speaks to the disciples, how he's guiding them. And once we learn how he's speaking to the disciples, we can ask how he's speaking to us. Because he's speaking to the disciples this way does not necessarily mean he's always going to speak to us that way. It's the first rule of, of reading and interpreting the Bible. We need to see how he did it with the disciples. And then we can ask what this means for us in light of who we are. We are not Peter. And then in the second part, how the Spirit will speak through the disciples and how the Spirit may speak through us. The passive component is if you read this and you go, oh, they're just told to wait, and then God's going to do all the work. See, his Pentecost, the flaming tongues are going to come down. He's going to get them to speak all in tongues. They won't even have control over their bodies. And then miracles will happen through them like they're possessed. That's the passive reading that we tend to go to when we look at these stories. But this is an active waiting. Think about how difficult it would be to go back into that city, to go back into that room, to wait on a promise of something. You have literally no idea what's going to happen. Will everyone make fun of us when we come back to Jerusalem? Your rabbi just died a gruesome death, and you thought he was the Christ. Gosh, you guys are idiots. Think of all the things that would haunt them as they come back here in this active waiting. But how do they wait? It says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They all First, we've we got to pull this apart. First, they all joined together. That's a particular way of explaining community. They all joined together. Not they just showed up. Not this was part of their regular rhythm before they get lunch on Sunday. Not this is what they always do because it's just what they did when they grew up. They all join together constantly. We see right away that there's a community component to actively waiting on Jesus. When we are actively waiting on Jesus, when we say, I don't know what's up with my life. I don't know what's up with my job. I don't know what's up with my, my health. I don't know what's up with my children. To come actively and wait in the community of believers with regularity is something that the text shows us. To not abandon that in our woundedness or our earthly anxieties, but to come in community with unity. Not to come in and sit in the back and be afraid of what other people think. Not to control and join our, with our little clique. Not to come in unity, to seek to join all together with regularity. That's the first thing that's happening in this active step of waiting. The second thing that we see is that they're coming constantly in prayer. Probably they're praying for the Spirit to come. The Spirit's been promised to them. So in their conversation with Jesus now ascended into the heavens, they are praying, bring, bring, bring the next step. Tell me, God. I mean, how many of us have been in that space? Tell me, 
What's next? Bring it here. Give it to me. Let me see it. And we see that in order to do that, and this takes a little deeper reading of the text, because it's not just said right there in verse 14, we say that they have been reading the scriptures. We see it because Peter stands up among them and talks about how the scriptures are going to script out that process of waiting for them. How being process-minded disciples versus product-minded people, that they look to the scriptures to, dis- to define a roadmap, not for their destinations, but for the process that they're going to live through. And they're doing it in a new way. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that in the New Testament, the disciples are only working with the Old Testament scriptures? They're not even working with the Gospels. They're working with their own eyewitness recollection of Jesus' life and what he's told them in person and what he's preached. And we see in the road to Emmaus that Jesus says, you've got the Old Testament, you've got my life, now read it all. Read it all through the door of my life and see what the kingdom program is all about. You've gotten off track. The kingdom program, the mission that God is on has never changed. You've gotten off track. You need to see it through the life of Jesus who has come into the flesh to be absolutely relatable to you and to live the life you could never live. Now see how that Messiah unlocks the scriptures. And then the New Testament spills out from that. So in Acts, we're in a really interesting space where the disciples are at a hinge, a turning point. And through their biblical interpretation which we believe is done divinely inspired and is absolutely correct, that we get the New Testament scriptures that we treat as scriptures, that we see with authority. But they, did, they, were, they were literally speaking out and writing out that authority in real time. It's wild. And they're doing that Following a God who's on the move. This is another thing we've been talking about, that God is on the move in this kingdom. He's on the move in Portland. He's doing things in your life. He's calling you to places. He's got a program for you. He's got a mission for you. And he's on the move. So when they're waiting on Jesus... They are not waiting for him to show up and he's just been absent for a long time. We're not waiting on a God who's not here and occasionally intervenes and appears. We live our lives like that a lot of times, but that's actually not what's happening. The waiting on Jesus is an active waiting of saying, you are around, you're on the move, you're leading. If you're not doing something right now, it's for a purpose. You want me here in this upper room. You want me together. You want me to anchor in on the process like the disciples are doing. And so Peter, major growth, by the way, here. Peter, who has stumbled and fallen and tried to be a leader, is finally growing into himself here. And he's taking on a kind of leadership that's new and is going to define the ministry of Acts for the first half. And it shows us that when we're waiting on Jesus, that it usually requires some direction. So let me read verses 15 through 22. In those days, Peter stood among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, so what's happening here is Peter is saying, while we're waiting, we can't just sit and twiddle our thumbs. Let's look at the kingdom program. Let's look at the kingdom mission. What needs to be done here in the upper room while we're here? What things can we see from scripture need to happen? 
Yeah, I can imagine them up in this upper room. They're kind of like an overgrown house church vibe going on in this upper room. There's, there's 11, not 12. So there's been some things that have happened with the leadership. And then there's a bunch of people and their family members. We have mothers of people. We have brothers of people that have all been affected by Jesus in some way, whether they've been healed mentally, spiritually, physically, socially. And they're all gathered together here. And Peter says, something's not complete with this picture. If, if Jesus is going to bring a restoration of a kingdom, and we have 11 of the 12 tribes represented, we have 11 of the 12 disciples represented here. Let me go read the scriptures and see what needs to happen. And he finds in Psalms connections that show him that the Spirit speaks to him in that they need to complete and restore the core group that they have as they're going through this mission of restoration. So they, they, they're, leading, they're being led through woundedness, remember, coming back just not into the space, but actually into their community, looking at the wounds of their community and consulting the scriptures with the power of the Spirit through the door of Jesus to practice and participate in renewal for their local community, like the people in this room. They're saying, where are we wounded here? While we're waiting on God, where we're not sure what the next step is. When we're following everything he says, but nothing's really exploding here for us. Can we find wholeness together by walking through wounds together? I think this is really good leadership from, from Peter. I think this, this spoke to me. What Peter's doing is he's bringing closure to the larger group on why Judas was gone. Think about it. We think just like, oh, we got to get back to 12. Oh, this is, you know, prophecy. It's got to happen. So he's just kind of going through the motions. But if you put yourself in Peter's shoes and you put yourself in the shoes of that community, Judas is gone. Judas, Judas, one who had done ministry with them. This is a friend. This is a friend who, in a relatively quick amount of time, things went super sideways. And they were betrayed by one of their closest friends. A man who followed among 12 close followers, the inner circle of Jesus who ate meals together, were viewed at by the wider group as the leadership team. And one of them stabs Jesus in the back and it results in his death. That's a wound, that's a betrayal. And Peter is saying, I am going to consult the scriptures to see that this is not simply a murderous, chaotic happenstance, but to figure out how this can actually build us in hope for the divine sovereignty of Jesus. Making sense of the seemingly senseless is a job of the leader. This is what pastors did for us in COVID. They sought to go and commune with others in unity and prayer, consulting the scriptures, saying, God, what do you want us to do in this waiting time? God, can I lead people into some sense out of the senselessness of a worldwide pandemic that seems to kill people for absolutely no reason indiscriminately? What are you saying about our process? Where are you anchoring us in? Where is the spirit guiding us? Can we tune in? And can we understand how the Holy Spirit is speaking to us? Because what we get to with Judas, and this is why I called the sermon Spirit Speaking and not the Spirit Speaking, is that there are two spirits that speak to us. And Judas had been listening to the voice of Satan, the voice of the devil, and it had perverted. It had sounded like the voice of God. He was following what he thought was the divine voice, but he had, become, he had mistaken it. Now, we can, we can theorize on why Judas did what he did all day long. Lots of different takes on it. Here's one that I thought was interesting. William Barclay says, It may be that he was driven to destroy the one who knew him for what he was. He was driven to destroy the one who knew him for what he was. That's, that's shame right there. 
I am not who I present myself to be. And Jesus, you really see me. And I can't handle it anymore. I can't handle it. I'm so undone by the shame of my own hypocrisy. And Jesus, if you really can see me, you're going you're gonna to judge me. And you're going to get me. And I'm condemned. And I'm the worthless person I always knew I was. And he just couldn't handle it anymore. That's one take. Well, if, if we just dive into that for a second, Judas could have been listening to only half of God. It's not that he didn't hear Jesus. It's that he only heard half. He saw the judgment God. You could have listened this morning to the Exodus passage I read and just zeroed in on the violence. Said so those Egyptians, God is so wrathful and horrible and he kills them. And oh my gosh, John's reading this violence and we're calling these people to worship. What is this community and who is this God? And why does he let people die? And... But that was only seen half of Jesus. Jesus is the judge and he will come and judge. And he is the one he knows us. But Jesus, Judas didn't see the half of Jesus that was crazy in love for him crazy in love with him, that was just with him to redeem him as part of the kingdom program for the restoration that he had for him. And when we only see half of God, the spirit that we're listening to is the voice of Satan. Scary. It's scary to think that, but that's what he does. He brings us and he perverts the message of God because nobody, very few people choose to just follow the devil. Like, I'm a proud, I mean, we do, we have them, it's wild, but for the most part, people are trying to live the good life, follow the divine truth, seek the God of the universe, and be in his good graces, or be like him, or evangelize whatever they think God is to other people. But when we only see half of that picture, or a portion of that picture, we're listening to Satan, and it's through Satan that Judas then guides, from the voice guiding him, he guides those who arrest Jesus. So we can be guided by the spirit of Jesus, God, or we can be guided by the devil. A voice that sounds like guidance, but its fruit is betrayal, its fruit is greed, its fruit is control and isolation. And where does this lead Judas? John 8, 44, he writes that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Satan's goal is just to bring total destruction and disgrace to anyone under his control. His mission is chaos. He seeks to obscure himself and everything else. He just doesn't want God to have it. As long as God doesn't get it, he's happy. So Peter is addressing this betrayal with the spirit of truth, guiding the people of God. And I think I just want to ask ourselves for a second, how many of us have experienced betrayal? Like how many of us, raise your hand, like how many people have experienced betrayal? Peter wants to be poised for the spirit to come, so he's leading his people through betrayal to find the goodness of God and his kingdom plan still intact through betrayal. William James, Jennings, William James Jennings writes, we who follow Jesus are working in wounds, working with wounds, and working through wounds. This is, this is our work. This is what disciples do. Working in wounds, working with wounds, working through wounds. So when we read Acts, a lot of times I think we read it as this golden age of the church. We go, oh man, I wish my community could be more like the early church. Didn't they share all that? It was like a communist, like out in the woods, everything was great. The age of innocence. They really got it. What went wrong? We see the book of Acts with rose-colored glasses, and we wish we were like that. But we don't really read the text closely, what they're dealing with and what they're going through. The constant rebuilding. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. This is going to happen later in the book of Acts. They withhold things from the community. And God's wrath and his holiness is exposed to them. And they drop dead. I mean, 
this is going to shake up a community. This is, this is, everything is not picture perfect here. Think about the book of Corinthians where Paul is writing to a church that's gone off the rails. And is saying, we, we need leadership in here. We need people to get back on the program in here. We need better, better Bible readers here. We need to work on this. And the other thing that I think that this really helps show us is that there is a communal ripple effect of sin. Now, this is something that in our churches, we focus so much on the vertical, on me and Jesus, my sin as impacting my relationship with Jesus. I then pray for repentance and forgiveness. God, will you please forgive me? Me and God are good. All right, let's get back to it. Man, Jesus, I'm so glad you love me. And we don't address the ripple effect that our sin has had on the community. Tim Keller writes this about this phenomenon. He says, in order to overcome the Enlightenment's individualism, because that's what we're doing when we're only concentrating on the one piece, we're acting in the culture that we were raised in, which is an individualistic culture. The church must redefine sin, he says, mission and salvation in corporate and communal terms. Rather than speaking of sin primarily as an offense against an holy God, sin is seen in horizontal terms as a violation of God's shalom in the world through selfishness, violence, injustice, and pride. Rather than speaking of the cross primarily as the place where Jesus, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our sin, Jesus' death is seen as the occasion when the powers of this world fell on Jesus and were defeated. Mission, then, kingdom mission, is ultimately not about getting individuals right with God, but about incorporating them into a new community that partners with God in redeeming social structures and healing the world. That's a different paradigm of church. That's a different paradigm of what's happening here in this upper room as the Spirit is hovering over the waters, waiting for the boom moment. There is communal sin that needs to be addressed here. There is woundedness that needs to go through healing here, and it's going to take leadership, and it's going to take all the other things we talked about. Last thing, and I don't know how long I have to, to really look at this, not long. Um, casting lots. The sovereignty of God comes out in casting lots, and I think this is something that some of us really scratch our heads around. Like, am I supposed to still do that? No, that can't be. If you read the text closely enough, and I'll just whiz through this. First of all, there's lots of texts I look through in the Old Testament about casting lots. It's not what you think. I think a lot of us think, oh, this is like a woo-woo thing we don't do anymore where you can just like, roll the dice and Jesus is in charge and will make your decision, like magic eight-balling your life with Jesus. And people do this a lot, right? Well, I don't know, I asked Jesus and, you know, then this thing showed up in my Bible, so I said, let's just go do it, Right? I know many people who do this. Look at, look at the way that this is set up. First of all, they're casting lots between two people. They've used all the common sense, all the good leadership. They've walked through all the paradigms. These people both have resumes that pass the job interview. They pass the apostolic witness test. They've done everything that's asked. They've gone through John's baptism up through witnessing of the resurrection. Now, those are really important. They're going to come back. John's baptism was preparing the way. Right? Repent for the king. Like, repent and be ready for the kingdom. Like, these are people that got on early and they were convicted early of the coming Messiah and the truth of the prophecy of the Messiah coming. They all pass the test and then the dice are rolled and you say, well, we, we would just never do that. We don't do that anymore. We do it all the time. We did it with our kids, a school lottery. We said, we're going to put the kids in the school lottery. The school lottery is going to cast lots to figure out which kids can go to school. They're going to do it randomly because it would be unfair to do it any other way. It would be unjust. So actually, what the disciples are doing here is, is common sense. It's the way we would still do it in order to be fair and just. Here's what's different about it, though. When our kids got into creative science school, this text tells me that if the procedures and parameters are all in line with Scripture, we vetted the school, we think it's a good school, we think this is part of our mission with Jesus is to be here, all of this, and they get in, look what they do. They say, 
Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Lord, show us. Then they don't look back. God's sovereign will is enacted in the random chance, and they say, God wants this. Now, I, I know that this is, this is tricky. This is something to chew on, but I'm going to plant this seed in you. How many times have you rolled those dice and decided to do a random selection and then gone and been like Lot's wife and looked back, right? And said, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is right. But part of what this text is showing us with the disciples is that they said, when our discernment is exhausted, we leave the discernment to God and we move forward. We're following God in the move and we're drafting behind him. Part of, part of engaging with God's kingdom program is saying, I'm going to do everything I know to do in community, in prayer, with the scriptures. I'm going to check all the boxes. And at a certain point, I just make a decision and I don't look back. Because looking back creates, I can testify to this, looking back creates all kinds of turmoil. There's a ripple effect with doubting God's sovereignty. There's a ripple effect with the communal sin that results from that doubt. You're double-minded like Lot's wife. You create agony for all the people around you because they're like, I thought you were okay with this. So part of listening to the Spirit takes all these pieces into place, but the key thing here is we have to realize there is a divine sovereignty to the acts of life that are happening before us. All right. And we move into the second piece. How does the Spirit speak through these people that are actively listening and following the way of Jesus? The Spirit's hovering over the waters. The raw materials are in place. Everything's ready for the dominoes to topple. And what happens on chapter 2, verse 1? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, if I say, wax on, wax off, do you catch the reference? Karate Kid. Talking about building character, right? Just stick with it. This is a character building exercise. I'm cueing a reference for you. I'm saying a line. It means something to a particular audience because they have grown up culturally with that as a major cultural reference for them. We do this all the time, okay? This is what Luke's doing to his audience, which his audience is a man named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. In fact, we know very little. So we can conjecture different things. We conjecture mostly from the way Luke writes. Given how Luke is writing the details he's using and the, the, the things he's showing, who might Theophilus be? I think one of the most compelling um, imaginations of who Theophilus might be is a patron. This is a, gen a Gentile Jewish convert who is wealthy and in a social sphere where he can pay Luke to put together a historical record of the life of Jesus in the early church. He's a patron. And so Luke is talking to Theophilus knowing that he's going to know certain things but also knowing that there's lots of other things. He, he, he thinks that Theophilus is a new insider, is what a lot of people say. A new insider, meaning that he thinks that he gets and believes and has faith in Jesus, but he actually doesn't have all the pieces put together yet. So he knows what it means to be a Jew. He knows what all these things, but, but he's new to it. And he needs to be convinced and have it make sense, both from his Greek or Gentile background and from his Jewish um, his new social community that he's in. So he's pinning and he's taking Pentecost here, and we don't know that much about Pentecost. When we think about Pentecost, we think of the Holy Spirit coming and speaking in tongues. We think of Pentecostals. We think of that, like, that's what we think of when we think of Pentecost. But Pentecost was a festival post-Passover, about 50 days after Passover, and it, had, it was a good time of year. The weather was good. There was a large attendance and pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was the time when the dedication of the first wheat sheaf of the wheat harvest was happening. The first fruits are happening at Pentecost. We've heard that. We've heard Paul talk about the first fruits in relationship to the Spirit. See, all these things are connected. And in the Jewish tradition, this was a time of giving of the law and renewing a covenant. It's like renewing vows are happening at Pentecost. So do you see, you can, you're already putting the pieces together. Well, there's a practical reason this is happening at Pentecost. Luke's got everything ready for the boom, 
right? He's got thousands of people in the temple courtyards from all over the place, from the diaspora, from kingdoms all around that have come. They're renewing a covenant. They just don't know which one it is yet. This is a time in which the first fruits of a new harvest will come out. You see all of the layers of literary meaning that Luke is working with here. When I see that in the Bible, I go, I love this. Like, I want more of this. This feels real to me. This doesn't feel accidental. This doesn't feel fake. This doesn't feel forged. This feels absolutely deep beyond imagining. And he's primed all of this up. We're on pins and needles thinking what is going to happen, and then he's going to topple all of the dominoes. And he wants us to think literarily, not literally. We want to be here with a video camera and say, was it a fire of tongues? Like, was it, did it, like, did the rushing wind come through? Were those voices? What is going on? I want, I want the video camera tape of what happened in the room at Pentecost so that I can really understand what I should do as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. God says, I gave you literature. Read it. And then read it. And then read more of it. And then read around it. And then read around that. Put the pieces together. Because Luke is saying what happened. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says that the Bible teaches us how to read itself. I think of it like if you watch a director's film and you really like it and you go watch other films by that director. You start to realize how that director's working. You start to read how, how he's creating the stories and how he tends to show things and what he's queuing up. Then take it a level deeper. If you watch, say you like mystery movies, whodunits. As you watch whodunits, you start to watch new whodunits that are actually playing off old whodunit movies, pulling references that you will know because you've been watching them. And there's like layers to the film. You're seeing it in like a new dimension because you can see it in all those layers. That's what Luke's doing. He's saying, I'm going to give you so many dimensions here that you can go down. I was telling Carrie at Cohort the other day that I feel like the Bible has an infinite level of dimensions like that. It just keeps going down. And he does three literary things here. He, he cues up three major images, and these are where the meaning is. Not the videotape. These are where the meaning is, I think. One, he talks about the spirit coming as wind, second as fire, and third as water. You have to read a little bit closely to see the water piece. I'll, I'll explain these. The fire piece is absolutely queuing up the way the director of the Bible plays with the element of fire throughout biblical history, and it is an emblem of holiness. Holiness is coming down from the vertical into the community that has made their way right out of John's baptism, preparing the way for the Lord, and the fire shoots down. Verse 2, suddenly the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of different versions and images of fire in the Bible. Let's just trace through quickly a few. The cherubim guarding the, 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 the Garden of Eden with flaming swords that prevent Adam and Eve from coming back in because they can't take of the tree of life because they haven't chosen God to be their authority. So eternal life is barred from them. Think of the burning bush in Exodus and Moses has to, but the burning bush is a consuming fire, but the bush is not consumed because it's the presence of God. It's the holiness, but Moses can't touch it. Think of the ways that all of these fires are the pillar of fire that's guiding the people of Israel. God's presence shown as a holy pillar. God talks to Moses in Exodus. Uh, I think this is, shoot, I should look at my reference here. I'll just say it. It says, did, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? So there's something about this purity versus impurity of the holiness of these flaming tongues coming down that's totally insane to witness because it's coming and resting on each of them. The holiness is coming before them. The same fire that came down on Mount Carmel when Elijah prayed for it and consumed the altar when it was soaking wet has come to rest. The divine presence has come to rest on the apostolic community to indwell in God's people. 
So there's power, but in this holiness, there's also great mercy. That's where we get to this next image. That the Spirit is coming like wind. The Spirit is blowing like a violent wind and filling the whole place. Think of Elijah and the still small voice, right? And it starts large and booming. That's the presence of God wishing through. Think of Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's wind. And the man became a living creature. So John has Jesus comparing the Spirit's work to wind all throughout his gospel. And he actually has a point where he has a Pentecost moment. This, is, this will blow your mind. Where in John 20, verse 22, he says, When he had said this to the disciples, he meets with them in the 40-year period. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the breath thing is very linked. In fact, we have maybe two tellings of a Pentecost moment. Maybe there's something different here. Not going to go there. So wind, fire, and the last is water. It came and rested in all of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Treats the body like a vessel, filled with water, filled with the presence of God. We're not consumed by the fire. We're filled with the living water. And that cues up lots of stories of Jesus, multiple stories where he talks about that. So this is, a, this, is, this is showing us something unique is happening in the New Covenant, that Jesus has died, resurrected, and his spirit is coming to the, the community of the twelve, restored and ready and poised. And he's alighting on them a little bit like the dove that alights on Jesus. They've gone through John's baptism just like Jesus did, right? He went before John and he said, baptize me. He doesn't need to be baptized, but he is repentant in a model of what that looks like for the Israelite community. He's saying, I am going to come and make way. The way is right within me, is what Jesus is saying. Not, I need to repent of my sins. I have made the ray right within me to be one with God. And then the dove comes and rests, and what emanates after that is the horizontal. That's, that's the, the ministry is going to flow out of that. The mercy ministry of Jesus flows out of that point after the purification, out into the horizontal. And I think you see a very similar thing here, where the vertical fire comes in, it rests on all of them, and what happens? The Spirit speaks... They're listening. We know they're ready and they're listening. And then they speak in the same tongues that came down and lit among them, and the tongues of grace that kept from consuming them. They can now speak that grace out into the world. So I'm not going to get into battles about what Pentecost means and speaking in tongues and the videotape version of that and whether we should do it or not. That's not the point. I happen to not be a cessationist. I happen to think that miracles can still happen. I think that speaking in tongues is a thing. I just don't think it's a gatekeeping thing that proves whether or not, because you do a videotape version of this text, that you're able to preach the gospel the same way that Jesus does in mercy and grace. And instead, what I see here is that the Pentecost moment is showing a new covenant that's realized in a tight community that they're going to share out and praise the goodness and beauty of Jesus' forgiveness of sins on the cross, his ransom for us. That's what's happening. Is they're saying, John 3.16, there's a new covenant. Repent, anyone who repents and believes, not even in that order, believe and repent, I don't care. We'll come into a new covenant of mercy and grace. So let's read on here and wrap this up. Verse 5 through 12. Now they were standing in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because they heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, aren't all these speaking Galileans? The, the language of God's grace for us is the mother tongue. That's home. That's the place where everyone can be reached. That's the message to me. The deepest message of Pentecost is that we are called as people who follow Jesus to make right the way within our souls 
for him. There is a repentance component. We are constantly in a state of following in the community, of being refined and purified. That's an ongoing thing. But he's made our, his home with us regardless. And now we each are appointed with a ministry of healing wounds through the grace of Jesus and no other way. And it creates a new kind of communion, a new kind of cultural intimacy between peoples. Willie James Jennings says that it's one that transcends geopolitical, nationalist, ethnic, and racial boundaries. When we see that there is a God underneath all of this, then we can point everyone to the mother tongue and say, I think you get what I get. When I share my healing ministry with you, maybe I'm a doctor and I, and I share something that's just a ministry of physical healing to you. And I can point and say, I do this because God healed me. And you can experience the wholeness of that ministry and say, that grace thing is part of the, it is the character of your God. That's who you worship. Is somebody filled with that kind of grace? Tell me more. That feels like home. That feels like my mother tongue. That feels like the way I grew up and saying the words I said as a baby and a child and being held. It brings back all of the images in home. And whether we speak that in the language of the bayou or the country or the city or the Hopi or in our art or in our healing ministries or in our social work or whatever it is that we do, that is us beginning to speak in tongues as the Spirit enables us through the new kingdom covenant of forgiveness of sins by Jesus. And when people will hear it, they will say, aren't those who are speaking Christians? I thought Christians were this. I thought they were all whatever I read in the news. We all know what I'm thinking, right? Like whatever thing I thought Christians were is a reason not to like them. I thought they were that because Galileans, that's a that. When they say, aren't those speaking Galileans, they're like, aren't those idiots? Aren't those backwater guys? Aren't those people that don't have a clue? No. They've contextualized the gospel, the good news of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit. I'll just finish with one story. I I had a friend, and we would meet up for drinks, and he was going through some really hard things in life. His name was... um, Aaron. And we would meet for drinks, and I would just listen and talk. And he knew that I went to church. I didn't bring it up all the time. But I would would bring up Jesus in the conversation as to why I thought this was the right way to do things. I would listen to him, and I would say, I would, I would respond, and I would just try and get him, and I would try and give grace to him. And I remember very distinctly walking out of the bar one night, and he looked at me, and he goes, John, he goes, it's weird when you speak to me. It's like you know things about me. It's like you, you know things I've never told you, and it's, it's really weird, and I like it. <laughs> and it was like a very weird thing for a guy friend to say to you. This was kind of how Aaron was. And I thought, that's the spirit working through me. I, I didn't have any clue I was speaking to your deepest, innermost needs. But that's your mother tongue that I was able to speak in the ministry of grace to you by listening, by walking through woundedness with you, by sharing who heals me with you. Now, this story doesn't have a happy ending, okay? He ended up not listening and saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I said, I can't get behind it, and I'm really sorry. Doesn't always have a happy ending, but I don't think that means I wasn't on the kingdom mission. And that the spirit wasn't working in him there. I don't know what God's long-term plan is. But as we, as people that are living in the spirit, with it indwelling in us, as we go out on mission, if each of us take it on in this two-part way, with listening to the spirit speak to us and then allowing the spirit to speak through to us, to others, I think we'll be living a life of discipleship. And I'll just finish with this. Mike Glenn wrote this, writes for a blog called Jesus Creed, and he said, a disciple is a very different from a church member. A disciple may be a church member, but a church member doesn't have to be a disciple. What's the difference? 
A disciple understands the grand arc of salvation history and the ultimate purpose of God's heart that drives our evangelistic mission. In the military, they call this the commander's intent. This means that every soldier in the unit understands the ultimate goal of the battle plan. That way, if the battle plan begins to fail, the soldier can adapt in order to still achieve the ultimate goal of the mission. A disciple understands the commander's intent of the Great Commission. So we can get out in the weeds, but if we understand the commander's intent of the witness that the disciples are on and the witness that we follow as people who are on the ends of the earth, by the way, we're not the disciples, we're at the ends of the earth. The gospel has reached us through this very method that's a sign of its success. So if we as disciples can contextualize, meaning we can make the gospel of Jesus relevant to the people we know in our sphere of influence, walking both as disciples under, in the vertical, purified, only in the presence of God through the grace of Jesus, through forgiveness on the cross, and then let that emanate outward. We are walking in discipleship. Let's pray. God, I just pray that in this room that, that we would see this story in a new way at the very least. And at the most, God, that you would work on the hearts of the people here to consider how it is that they have perhaps passively avoided engaging in addressing woundedness and bringing Jesus to bear on their life and their, their disciplines and their practices and their community or ways in which we blocked the Spirit traveling through us because it's enough for the Spirit simply to be in us, for us to walk with Jesus. But sharing that scary friendships, those break. And God, we've closed off our desire to make new relationships. We've blocked your kingdom mission from our hearts. We're not on mission. We're living for ourselves and our own ends. And God, I pray that you would convict us of that today. Give us specific things today, tonight, this week as we meditate in which we can bring ourselves on mission with you. In Jesus' name, amen.